Okay, so not much housekeeping here, just a few words by way of context. This is the audio of the event I did in Boston a few months ago with Rebecca Goldstein and Max Tegmark. I introduced them both from the stage, so you'll be reminded of who they are in a moment. But uh, we focus in this conversation on the foundations of human knowledge and morality as well. It's really a conversation about what is and what matters. And as is often the case with live events like this, there were some sound issues. The sound is definitely echoey and not perfect, but um, I think you'll acclimate. Hopefully, you'll find the conversation as interesting as I did. And so, now I give you Rebecca Goldstein and Max Tegmark. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. I have some great guests tonight. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. My first guest is a philosopher and a novelist. She has written about the relationship between science and religion and science and values. And she's also just written wonderful books on some famous people, Plato and Spinoza and Kurt Gödel. And she's received many awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship and the National Humanities Medal from President Obama. Please welcome Rebecca Goldstein. Thank you for coming. And my second guest is a physicist at MIT. He's also a professor there. Uh, he's authored more than 200 technical papers on topics ranging from cosmology to AI. And he's the president of the Future of Life Institute. And he's now one of my, my go-to guests on the podcast. I think this will be his third appearance, if I'm not mistaken. Please welcome Max Tegmark. Thank you Thank so you, much Max. for having Thank me. Okay, so as I said, I've really been looking forward to this because these are two people who I can really just dive into the deep end of the pool with without much concern about whether or not I can swim. I say in the, in the run-up to this, uh, Rebecca sent me an email asking if I knew what I wanted to talk about, and I said something very vague, and then she sent me another email that had maybe a, a thousand words in it, and it was just the most amazing roadmap to my intellectual life. It's what I want to spend the next 10 years thinking about. So I'm going to use that uh, very much to guide this conversation. And Max hasn't seen any of this, so he should just be terrified. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about what we think we know about reality and, and why we think we know it. And I want to talk about the parts of reality that, that matter and what makes them matter, and whether we have to depart from scientific rigor in order to talk about anything mattering. And so this conversation will take us to, to, onto terrain that I love, which is the relationship between facts and values. But to start, I want to talk uh, briefly about the, the relationship between science and philosophy. And so, uh, Rebecca, I'd like to start with you. And just, I mean, there, there are many scientists who have said very disparaging things about philosophy is actually, actually one who we both know who I'm, I'm having an event with in about 48 hours. 
He should probably remain nameless, but his name rhymes with Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but you, know, you, you repeatedly point out in your work that, that science is riddled with philosophy just from, from stem to stern, and that, and that you, if you are not aware of your philosophical assumptions when doing science, you're very likely to be making illegitimate claims about how your science maps onto reality. So, so start us off with a, with a little bit on the relationship between science and philosophy as you see yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I sent you these, this roadmap. I know I'm, I'm trying to situate myself on it. I think that, that science is the, our, our great arbiter in trying to figure out the nature of reality, of what is. Um, and I think that this increment of, of, of science the amazing trick uh, that it eventually worked out sometime in the 17th century uh, was that it gets reality itself to collaborate with us mm. because our intuitions are all off, right? And so our intuitions about space and time and individuation and teleology and causality, um, all of these very deep intuitive intuitions we have turn out to be to be off. I mean, the nature of reality itself turns out, you know, that reality out there exists exactly as it's represented to us in our subjective experience is, is off. And so this is an amazing thing that we've figured out what to do to get reality, <clears throat> to, to prod reality so that it will answer us back when we're getting it wrong. Hmm. You know, so, oh, so you think... Simultaneity is absolute, do you? It seems intuitively obvious that two events are either simultaneous with each other or not, regardless of which reference frames uh, they're measured in, moving relative to each other. Well, we'll just see about that. And somehow we prod reality to, to, to answer us back. And that seems to me that's, that's what science does. So any question that we can figure out so that somehow reality itself can kind of smack us around and tell us that we've gotten it wrong. That's scientific. Hmm. What philosophy, I think, uh, is, is about is trying to maximize our coherence. We're very compartmentalized creatures, I think for reasons that science is beginning to tell us why, evolutionary psychology is tell, can tell us why we're such compartmentalized creatures, we live very happily with our contradictions. And it's philosophy's job to vitiate our happiness. Um, <laughs> to, and it, that's been the way of philosophy ever since Socrates was wandering around that agora in his dirty chitin, annoying people, getting them, showing them the internal contradictions. It has to, the philosophy has to take all of the knowledge that science is giving us um, about what is, about the nature of reality, and, and test it against other of our intuitions and see which are compatible, which are incompatible, what the options are. So a philosophy is always dependent on science. A good philosopher has to know, has to keep up with science. Right. Um, but it's, it's a different kind of skill set that 
that's called for. It's, it's not figuring out how to describe reality and then, and then tell us if it's right or wrong. Uh, and it's not, it's not merely a matter of being the birthplace of science because it, it, people, uh, it's often said, and I think I've said yeah. it myself, that there was a time where, where all questions, virtually all questions of, of interest were philosophical and then what's so-called natural philosophy birthed off these specific sciences. And I think in one of your papers, you talk about just people in philosophy signaling, you know, we, we need, we need some more science over here, you know, come help us. Right. And that's not, that's not what philosophy it happens is, is doing. In the yeah. course of asking these questions and trying to get our bearings in the world, um, that sometimes philosophers very often will put forth proto-scientific questions. The science isn't there yet. The, Im- yeah. the empirical means of prodding reality to as, as getting reality to be our collaborator doesn't exist yet. And often it's because the philosophers ask the question um, that the science emerges. It happened with physics. It happened with biology. It happened with linguistics. Um, it's, it's happening yeah. now in, you know, a lot of the fields that uh, evolutionary psychology and um, cognitive neuroscience is taking over before psychology. Uh, so um, it is, uh, so that happens, but I think that that is a, that's not what philosophy is about. Philosophy is not about prematurely ejaculating scientific <laughs> questions, right? That's not what we're trying to do. Right. It happens as a kind of accident, you know, yeah. uh, in, in, in trying to maximize uh, our coherence. All right, on that note, I'm going to ask Max what he thinks about philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite right. I mean, I, I've been in many physics conferences where someone has, some physicist has accused someone else of being too philosophical, as if that was supposed to be a put-down. And I find it absolutely ridiculous. You know, to me, philosophy is really a synonym of clear, logical thinking. And um, if you look at the PhD that I have and ask, what does the PH stand for? You know, I have news for those grumpy physics curmudgeons. It doesn't stand for physics. It's a doctor of philosophy. Why? Because... Well, natural philosophy is the phrase we used to use for, to describe what we now call science. It's the yeah. same thing. Really. And, and so within science itself, we often distinguish between theory and experiment. So I guess in, in your words, Rebecca, you could say philosophy is the pure theory. We don't do the experiments. And, and, and uh, we need that. Of course, all theory and no experiment, well, then you get string theory. <laughs> and that might be too much of a good thing also. Generally, we've had the most healthy progress when um, we've had both. Yeah. Where you have those theorists who keep annoying experimentalists, like come pointing out inconsistencies and giving them new ideas for things to try, new ideas for them to try to shoot down. And at the same time, you have these experiments who keep annoying the theorists by ruling out their theories. It's this interplay which has always been at work whenever we've had really great progress, I would say. I think that's the biggest laugh I've ever heard with string theory as the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Boston did that happen. <laughs> Let's just cut the enemies of philosophy a little slack here in that there's a difference in how we think about intellectual progress. So we, 
to say that there's been scientific progress is to say something that really would find no dissenters. I mean, just the, science, the progress of science is all around us. Yeah. How do you think about philosophical progress? What sort of philo philosophical progress have we made? Yeah. I'm sure you'll, you will say that we have made some and that it should be obvious to us, but we rarely talk as though we're making and have made great progress. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want, before I address that, I yep. just did want to say, you know, in my saying that science is, you know, our best means of answering the question of what is the nature of reality, for me to actually defend that view would take me outside of science. I would, I would have to put forth, forth a, a philosophical argument, which I'm very prepared to do. Mm. But I mean, there, is, there are other views about what science is all about, instrumentalism. I mean, that it's, that's scientific theories never expand our ontology, our nature of uh, reality of what is, but it's just, you know, it's a means of predicting future experiences. And it never, you know, so there's no reason to think that these theoretical entities uh, that are used in scientific um, theories really exist, that there are fields or quarks or, you know, black holes or anything. And, you know, and some very good scientists in the past um, and, and some philosophers as well, you know, put forth such arguments. So even to say uh, yeah. what it is that science is doing, science, reality can't tell us, is it instrumentalism or is it realism, uh, realism, yeah. uh, scientific realism, um, that, you know, depends on a, uh, on a philosophical <clears throat> argument trying to make coherent, you know, uh, our, our, what we're getting, the input we're getting from, from science. So it's just to, um, you know, to, to argue, I, I can understand how I call them philosophy jurors, you know, some of our most celebrated or certainly high profile scientists who just really dismiss uh, philosophy. You know, I, I understand what their argument is. Their argument is, what else can, is our intelligence good for other than figuring out what is? And it's science that does that. Therefore, you know, there are questions that we haven't answered yet about the nature of reality, but, you know, just give scientists enough time and research grants and, and, uh, and, and they'll get it. Um, well, there are other kinds of questions, um, including what is it that science is doing that is not, yeah. that is not itself a scientific question. So the, you can't even make the argument without wandering into, um, into philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what was your real question? Well, so, so well, I actually want to get there. So I want, I want to talk about realism versus all of its enemies, like, like instrumentalism. And, yeah. and, but, just, but just briefly, this, this, it is often thought that we don't make philosophical progress because the same sorts of problems seem to come around. You know, we're, we're still, and we're still reading Plato. For like, why, if we made progress, why would, it, why would anyone ever read Plato ever again? Yeah. Uh, so if you could just briefly address that before we move on to it's realism. Very, it's a hard question. And um, one of the arguments that I try to make is, first of all, when you read Plato and Aristotle, I mean, you're really amazed at um, how good they were at spotting the questions, but how bad their, their answers were. I mean, a lot of <laughs> these, you know, answers have been disposed of. And uh, a lot of, the other thing I think is that as we make philosophical progress, science has incorporated in a lot of the arguments um, about interpreting science that were really philosophical problems, the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, right? That 
uh, the 17th century philosophers made. The primary qualities are the ones that we captured in the language of mathematics, you know, which was the language of physics, and they really exist out there. Um, so position and, mo and, and motion and, and uh, weight and any, anything that can be described and, uh, described and measured in purely mathematical language. Um, and then you can subject them to mathematical equations and make progress. And everything else was deposited in the mind, you know, yeah. so the, the, the way things uh, look and the way they taste and the way they smell, that was all put into the mind. That this was all a philosophical um, argument made in the 17th century that just sort of became incorporated into what we think of as a scientific point of view now. It's, mm -hmm. it's a philosophical interpretation, but it is philosophy, and the arguments were philosophy, and it is part of what we think of as a scientific you know, world, world yeah. view now. I think that in general what happens, I think that there has been a lot of progress, and I think particularly in moral philosophy, that these were moral, testing our inconsistencies, our moral inconsistencies, pointing them out, making arguments, um, and, and moving us forward so that it's inconceivable to us now when we look back at our slave-owning, wife-beating, heretic-burning, you know, witch-stoning. Immediate um, family. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how could they not have seen this? Well, they didn't see it. Yeah. And it was philosophical arguments that got us to see it so that now it just, you know, we don't see philosophical progress because we see with it. It becomes the very lens that we're looking at the world with. And so it becomes invisible to yeah. us. So, yeah, it really is the water in which we swim yeah. intellectually. And, and so I want to talk about realism, which can be defined in, in a few different ways. But I, when I think about it, whether you're talking about scientific realism or moral realism or even introspective realism, just you, you, trying to figure out what it's li actually like to be you in each moment, it's the claim that there are truths, whether you know them or not, right? There, it's possible to be right or wrong about the nature of reality, and it's possible to not know what you're missing. There's a, an appearance-reality distinction where you're trying to get behind appearances and science is arguably the most rigorous place where we try to get behind appearances, or, or it certainly has the most rigorous methodology. Max, how do you think about th this appearance and reality distinction as a, as a physicist and cosmologist? How do I think about realism? And yeah, yeah. I mean, what, do you, what do you think science is doing? Because as Rebecca said, there's, yeah. there's, you can spend a lot of time as a scientist reconciling yourself to being an instrumentalist, which is just, you know, the math yeah. works out, we can yeah. predict the results of experiments, but who knows what we're actually probing into? What, what, who knows what it really looks like? One thing I've been quite surprised by over the years, actually, is how many, many scientists are incredible, even though you have an incredibly intelligent bunch of people, <clears throat> to come to entirely opposing views on philosophical matters, and often when you probe a little bit deeper, it's because they're quite naive about it and haven't even bothered understanding, you know, the various opposing points of views and because they dismiss all of this is too philosophical. So, but then they have their own closet philosophy that they just don't call a philosophy. So they, you know, so basically haven't thought it through. And some scientists take this very instrumentalist point of view that, hey, you know, who cares about if there's an ultimate reality or not? Or <laughs> we should just focus on... Uh, building gadgets that work and so on. Um, 
that's, I guess, really just the preference matter of interest. Some people like chocolate ice cream. Some people prefer strawberry. You know, if someone doesn't care what exists. But I, I do. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's this, this deep curiosity to try to understand more about the cosmos we live in that made me want to be a scientist. Uh, then there's a second school of um, dissent. You know, not the ones who say, I don't care about real, what reality is, but that deny its existence at some level. Uh, you get people who, who uh, deny what I call the external reality hypothesis, this hypothesis that there actually is an external reality independent of us humans. Of course, you get some extreme folks like solipsists who will just say that nothing outside their hand exists. But they're, they're a small Why minority. Why do they bother to say it? Who, but are... You, yeah, yeah, who, are, who are they talking to? Yeah. <laughs> but you also get the very famous people like Niels Bohr, one of the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, who said, no reality without observation about his quantum theory, which, when you think about it, means that it's humans, it's our observing that somehow makes things real. And um, this, to me, feels extremely arrogant, I have to say. I, I, no offense to you folks, or you folks, but I'm pretty sure that if, if all of us disappeared, the Andromeda galaxy would happily keep doing its thing. Mm. And... Uh, feels to me more less of a like less of a thought through really scientific position or philosophical position and more like just the continuation of this human hubris that set us back in so many other ways you know we used to be so obsessive about earth being the center of the solar system and then denying the idea that there could be other solar systems we even burned Giordano Bruno at the stake 400 years ago for for saying that and then this like, now resistance that of the idea of maybe parallel universes, also this idea that somehow we're so special relative to animals or slaves or whatever. So now when we say, oh, we're so special that reality couldn't exist without us, um, I think it's <laughs> silly, but it's a viewpoint I encounter quite a bit still in, the, in, in, in some scientists. Yeah, so the mm -hmm. interesting thing is, of course, if philosophical education was part of scientific education, um, they would find these kinds of viewpoints having been um, put forth. I mean, Bishop Barclay, nothing, you know, essay, as per Kippy, nothing exists unless you perceive it. Um, you know, he was putting forth these views and other people were criticizing them. And there's a whole long history where these things have been argued out and the, its weaknesses explored. And... Um, you know, it just would be good. It would be so stupid of me as a, you know, as a, as a non-biologist to think that I'm just going to charge in and say what's wrong with, you know, evolutionary biology or something without, without educating myself. There is a discipline in which all yeah. of these views have been argued out and hammered out and their strong points and their weak points evaluated. And since physics and, and all science raises these philosophical questions. Why not study the field? Exactly. But you see, this is precisely where this anti-philosophical snobbery comes in as a psychological defense mechanism, because these scientists will say, well, I don't do philosophy. I think philosophy is stupid. And then they will charge in and talk about all these philosophical questions, make up their own non-standard terms for things that philosophers have discussed for hundreds of years and completely ignore everything that's been done. And effectively, what they're doing is just bad, uninformed philosophy, yes, right? Yes, um, yes, exactly. And they justify it to themselves by saying it's all that philosophy is somehow 
stupid. Mm-hmm. I don't think that philosophy can be avoided, not just by scientists, but by all humans. I mean, I, in fact, think, you know, one way or another, we're all trying to get our bearings in the world, figure out what is and what matters. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't avoid, you know, some kind of philosophy uh, in, in doing that. I think that yeah. it's part of being human. Yeah, and unfortunately, there are impressive reasons to be skeptical that we're good at doing any of that. Yeah, that, yeah. And it's it's not just the sort of the the outcomes we see around us. It's it's that if you just, if you take an evolutionary perspective, if you take the perspective of evolutionary psychology, it's pretty clear that there are two inconvenient facts here. One, reality wasn't designed with us in mind. It wasn't designed so as to be perfectly interpretable by us and that's provided we're not living in a simulation that was run by the mormons who actually conquer the world at some point i'm waiting to find that out that mormonism is in fact true in this simulation and everything i've been saying is going to consign (laughs) me to hell but uh there's also the fact that we have not evolved our cognitive toolkit our intuitional toolkit and we'll talk about the primacy of intuition in a moment has not it hasn't been tuned up by evolution to track reality as it is. It's yeah. just that's just not the sort of apes we are. Yeah. And so what, yeah. what do you, what I, do you I think that's very astute what you're saying there, Sam, because the one of the reasons that has caused a lot of curmudgeonly scientists again and again dismiss philosophers and often dismiss even other scientists like who were a little too radical for their taste, you know, Einstein say, was precisely by saying, oh these ideas are too weird. And when they couldn't refute them with experiment, they would refute them by saying, that's not science. And, but what that really meant, saying that it was too weird, if, if you reinterpret that sentence in the context of evolutionary psychology, really meant that, you know, you know, obviously, as you said, we evolved our brains to have intuition for the things that were useful for our ancestors, right? Like how to hurl rocks at people and not get hit by the parabolic motions and stuff. We had no intuition whatsoever for anything that wasn't useful to them, like things moving much faster than us near the speed of light or things much smaller than us like quantum particles. So what, what evolution actually predicts for science is that whenever we use tech to see things that answer, our ancestors had no access to, it should seem weird. Hmm. It should challenge our very notion of what the boundaries of science are it should probably force us even to redefine from time to time you know, what we mean by science. So one could say, in, in, in that sense, that people who are being dismissive like this of, of things just because they say they're too weird or this is not science or too philosophical are really denying the fact that they're evolved apes and, and they're, they're taking this, this evolved evolutionary notion of what's intuitive and what's weird we're conflating that with some kind of truth. Well, this is mm-hmm. actually a point that we, we hit in a previous podcast, but I think it's worth reiterating, is that you, you would be suspicious of any final description of reality that was commonsensical. Oh, yeah. Right? Because we know our common sense isn't fitted to time frames in billions of years or to the, the Planck scale or to anything else that is at the frontier of your discipline. Exactly, the common sense, we, we should assume from evolution that it should simply be a useful approximation for that very limited domain of reality that we had access to without microscopes or telescopes or particle colliders or any modern tech. 
Yeah. So that's, of course, I mean, of course, science has come too far. We could never go back to something that's commonsensical. I mean, relativity theory, you know, general relativity theory, quantum mechanics, it's already blown our minds, right? And yeah. so we, we know that reality does not correspond so some of our deepest intuitions about space and time and causality, yeah. they, they've already been, you know, they're gone. Um, and so, I mean, we're n- there's no going back. Um, Except for those people who believe that all of this was created by a person just like us who doesn't like homosexuality for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I guess that's, I mean, you said that um, there, are, there are two great obstacles to our understanding uh, the nature of reality, what is and what matters. I mean, to mm. me, those are the two big questions. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and one is that, yes, obviously, unless, um, it, unless this world was created by some designer who made sure that our cognitive abilities are up to the task, not much evidence for that, um, yeah, this world, the laws of nature are, are, they were not designed with our cognitive faculties and capacities uh, in mind. And so it's amazing. To me, when, when people talk about all that we don't know, I, I'm not amazed by that. I'm amazed that we know anything, mm-hmm. uh, given that we are um, these evolved apes. And the other thing that, that keeps us, and here, a little more about um, moral knowledge that keeps us from um, understanding uh, nature of certain aspects of reality, including moral reality, um, is uh, you know our own self-involvement, um, our own way of privileging our ourself and and those we love and mm. our kin, our tribe, all of that, and so and that also is a tremendous obstacle uh, in terms of. We, we've made very slow moral progress. We've, you know, we've made it, but yeah. it's it's there. There's a real, it, and there, it's not getting reality to answer us back. It's more looking at the various things we believe and seeing the internal inconsistencies. So we've got science to this great thing of just, you know, we need reality to answer us back because reality, you know, wasn't created with our with our capacities in mind. So we've developed this these scientific tools. And I say philosophy is these other different set of tools, thought experiments, um, and forcing people to put all their premises out on the table, mm-hmm. digging them out, going further and further. What are the presumptions of your belief? Um, and the end game of that is to, um, the end of that game is to, to expose our, our inconsistencies, our internal incoherencies. Um, and we don't like that. I, that's I'm really that's that's our saving grace, really. Uh, if you we find find all sorts of ways of denying uh, that we are internally inconsistent, because it's usually working to our advantage mm-hmm. to deny these inconsistencies. Um, but if you really keep hammering at it and you push people's faces into it, eventually they give it up. And um, I think uh, that's a different kind of reason. It's not science, a different kind of reasoning um, activity, and it also helps us to make progress. It's humbling to consider just how ill-prepared we are for our modern circumstance by evolution. When you think of something as as simple and as 
obviously evolved and as as fundamental to our survival as as pain. Like so, we, so we are we've obviously evolved to feel pain, but we have not evolved to sense pain in a way that is especially useful in a modern context. For instance, you you can feel excruciating pain or be at least seriously inconvenienced by having an eyelash in your eye, right? Which is, means nothing, but you can your body can be riddled with cancer and you feel no pain at all because we have not evolved in a condition with oncologists and hospitals and but it would be very useful to feel pain associated with cancer and so as to detect it early there's almost certainly intellectual equivalence to that sort of disability where it would be it would be so much nicer to be able to do something intuitively or effortlessly that is in some way crucial to uh, the whole enterprise you're at the frontier of, of thinking about AI, and so we're now talking about the prospect of building minds better than our own at doing some of these things. Do you spend any time th worrying that there, there are certain questions that can be posed that are interesting, but take string theory as an example. Is string theory just a intellectual dead end that has absorbed the careers of you know, a, a full generation of physicists? Uh, I don't want to be able to make you any enemies here, but... And if not string theory, is or do you worry that there is something very much like that, where we are just we're playing with tools that are too blunt or not shaped appropriately for that corner of the universe? Well, let me say two things. First, about string theory, and, and then and then more broadly about what we can and can't do with our evolved minds. For string theory, even though I was joking about it earlier, and even though Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory has now broken up with string theory. Hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen that episode yet. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that most physicists today who say they're working on string theory are actually working on much more broad questions than just fundamental theoretical physics. And it's, string has just been kind of the thing they call themselves to sort of have a little community and get jobs. But the, the, it's more like the, 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 what was the That's theory formerly the known deeper. as, as, as strings. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of promising avenues in there, for sure. That doesn't mean every physicist should work on it, obviously, but it's good to take swings for the fences sometimes. On the broader question about um, what we can and can't do with our evolved minds, I think as an antidote, I mean, we had a lot of negativity here where we were lamenting, oh, evolution has limited us so much like this, we can't get intuition for this, and we're no good at that. Wouldn't it be great if we could have better pain <laughs> sensors for this, and so on. The flip side of that is I think there's a lot we can be very grateful for also that works remarkably well. And in, in, as you said, that's in a way worked way better than expectation. If, if, it is if, a kind of a miracle if, that it works as well as it does. It because, is. I mean, yeah. Look at the chimps, and the it, chimps are not doing much of anything. And it is. And, it, and first of all, if you think about the, what, we, what we actually evolved for, you know, our bodies haven't evolved that much in the past thousand years, but yet... We're living lifestyle now. We're sitting. We're in a big, giant wooden stone box with weird artificial suns here and and strange stuff on our bodies. And everything is. about we spend large fractions of our lives staring at the angles and the. Might have a, might have a, a loose. Hold on, hold on one second. I just want to remedy this problem because um, civilization is not working as well as advertised. <laughs> Okay. Maybe it's the Mormon simulators. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first sign. Okay. So, but on the on the optimistic side, first of all, it's remarkable how adaptable we are, and second, I do think it's it's actually 
really remarkable how much better we've been able to do with science than one might have thought. We are actually the masters of underestimation, as I think this summary of what we've learned from science in the past many thousands of years. First, we've, of course, underestimated dramatically the size of reality. Mm. And everything we thought existed was just a small part of a much grander structure, right? A planet, a solar system, a galaxy, galaxy cluster, universe, maybe more. But more fundamentally, we've also underestimated our own potential as humans to figure out our world. Think when Plato and Aristotle were, and so on were trying to understand a little bit of physics, they, almost everything was mysterious. And there were just a few things they thought they could find some formulas and regularities for, like motion. And then it turned out that was also completely wrong, what Aristotle had. And it took 1,500 years until Galileo fixed it. And yet today, we can turn it around and, and note that actually, you know, whereas Galileo, he could have a grape and a hazelnut and tell you how they would move if you threw them, right? But he couldn't tell you why the grape was green and the hazelnut was brown and why the grape was soft and the hazelnut was hard. Now... We can answer all of those questions with electromagnetism, with quantum mechanics, and, and, and we have managed to bring into the domain of science almost all aspects of the physical world now, except for consciousness mm -hmm. and intelligence. And, uh, and continuing just on the optimistic you know, gratitude side of this, this understanding has been wonderful, not just for satisfying our philosophical curiosity, but it's precisely this deeper understanding, which is, of course, given us the technology, hmm. which has transformed our lives. That's why our life expectancy isn't 35 anymore, right? And um, so even though, yeah, it kind of sucks that I'm so dumb and that, you know, that evolution... That's, that's the Tegmark quote I want on Twitter. It kind of sucks that I'm so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, things were not mysterious to Aristotle. That was the problem. I mean, he had a complete worldview that seemed to answer everything, hmm. um, but it, um, it was just all wrong. It was a completely wrong uh, methodology of explanation mm. because teleology was at its center. Yeah. I mean, the incredible thing that happened in the 17th century with Galileo and then even more with Newton uh, is that this marriage of mathematics with empirical observation and prediction. This is an extraordinary thing. It's not an, at all intuitively obvious. Yeah, yeah. That you take this, you know, what philosophers call a priori mathematics. It's not, it's a priori. It's not at all dependent on experience, right? It's completely deductive. And you marry it um, to observations and, and you get this powerful uh, methodology for exploring reality. And for, for Aristotle, you know, the quantitative was just one of the 10 categories of description, which were, were not very, very uh, important. It was all teleology. W what processes have an end and uh, we understand a process, a physical process, um, all processes, uh, by understanding what it's supposed to be accomplished through yeah. it. Mm -hmm. So it was a, you know, it was a way of explaining but it, it just didn't work. And so, you know, it was, so really, you know, science, it, we haven't been at work in science, I would say, for uh, thousands of years. I'd say we've been at work at, since the 17th century. So yeah. it's even more amazing yeah. how much and progress we've made. Yeah, and if I may just add a little bit to what, what you said there, Rebecca, I, I think this is also a tribute to modern philosophy, where the key word, I think, is humility. The idea that 
to get things right, we first have to be open to the idea that we might be wrong yeah. and actually question everything, in particular question our own prejudices. And that's what was really missing yeah. in Aristotle's time. Yeah. And once we got used to this idea that not only were we often wrong and it was a good idea to question it, but often when we questioned ourselves, that's precisely when we were able to get great new breakthroughs, which helped. That yeah. ushered in the modern revolution, the Renaissance, science, yeah. Yeah. and all the tech. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I mean, you're right. There's a kind of collective humility, I think, in both science and in philosophy, which very fortunately doesn't require that the actual pra practitioners be humble. Because yeah, <laughs> scientists are known can, for their humility. We can be thankful for that. Yeah, right. But, yeah. but there's, there's a kind of collective humility. Um, and I, I, yeah, so I often think of, to me, the def very definition of, si of me being a scientist is that I would rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. That's right. good. Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to talk about the, the concept of possibility. So much of what we talk about in our personal lives and in science and in philosophy takes as an assumption that there is a world of possibility. To, to talk about counterfactuals, things that might have been different makes sense. To talk about certain things that could have happened but in fact didn't happen. What gives us license to say that we might have done this event yesterday as opposed to today? And is this necessarily a, a scientifically or philosophically meaningful statement? I guess there, there are two views in philosophy and, and science that seem on their surface to be almost the same. I, they have different origins. Uh, so I, I wanted you to, to describe what's called modal realism in, in philosophy. And I wanted to connect that up with this picture of the, the many worlds interpretation of QM and then just talk a little bit about what it means to, to think in terms of possibility. Because yeah. my, my default setting now is that it may not make any sense at all to talk about possibility, that what is actual is, in fact, all there is and ever is and ever will be, and that possibility is just a fiction that we have spun in our conversation about what is, in fact, unfolding or seems to be unfolding. So yeah. Bring us to bring us to modal realism and Yeah. Uh, well, um actually Max would be better about modal realism because oh. I think he believes in it. Um and I don't. <laughs> do you, so. do you use do you use that <laughs> word for it? Well, you're the more of a card carrying philosophy for than I am. We should defend um I could explain it, what but, it means, but yeah. But it, it, if you loosely speaking take it to mean that everything that could exist does exist. I find that it's an interesting idea, but it's a little bit too wishy-washy to be really scientifically testable. And um, the, the various uh, theories of physics that give you some kind of a multiverse, whether it be distant regions of space that light hasn't reached us from yet, which are predicted by you know, some versions of inflation that gave us a Big Bang, or, or the ones of quantum mechanics or, or something else, uh, those are more restrictive in a way. It's not like everything I could think about after I had too much wine exists, but rather if you have some particular equations, physics that have this solution, you know, if they have another solution too, maybe that exists. That's the kind of alternative realities that these theories tend to give. And, but the shocking thing is 
that those alternative realities are still, in those cases, very many. And uh, this bothers a lot of people. So, for example, my colleague Alan Guth here at MIT, he, uh, when he and others came up with this inflation theory, which is the most popular mainstream theory of science right now for what caused our, our Big Bang, you know, what it basically says is, yeah, you took something smaller than an atom and it just kept doubling its size over and over and over again until it was vastly larger than all the space that we can see, that we mm -hmm. call our universe. And it also predicts that all this other space is also kind of uniformly filled with stuff initially. We know that in this neck of the woods, that stuff, those atoms and so on, gradually coalesced into form, among other places, the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system, and Sam Harris, respect Rebecca Goldstein, and me and you, and here we are, you know. Um, but we know that the probability that this would happen in some random place isn't zero, because it happened here. And inflation typically predicts you actually have an infinite amount of other places with stuff. So if you roll the dice infinitely many times, of course, it's going to happen again. Yeah. And, and uh, the shocking prediction is then that if you go far enough away, you're going to get to another place where this identical conversation is taking place. The, yeah. the first one you come to, the, the person wearing the red sweater is not going to be, is going to be named Max Schmegmark and he's going to be speaking some incomprehensible different language, whatever. But if you go far enough, you'll even find someone who speaks English and has the same memories. It's very disturbing uh, notions, but you can't dismiss it just by the saying it sounds too weird, right? right? The way you dismiss it would be to falsify this physics theory, Alan Guth's equations. And there are people building experiments right now to try to falsify it or test it better. And that's how we're ultimately going to sort it out, not by having prejudice about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So the, the philosopher who was um, argued very strongly for modal realism was David Lewis. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, did, did you know him? Did you? Yeah, you no, Princeton? when I was a graduate student at Princeton, yeah. he was yeah, he was actually on my dissertation committee. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah. I won't pry any further then. Well, maybe I will pry. Yeah, was, no, he's a very <laughs> sweet man. He's a very sweet I heard, man. I, I, I never met him, but I, yeah, he, he was, was supposed to be very smart. He was a formidable philosopher yeah. and a very sweet man. Um, I'm actually have a very strong mental image right now of he had a train set in his basement. Um, and he would only take people he liked very much down there. Uh -huh. And I did get to go down there once. And you were he, train set material. And it was. <laughs> that sounds kind of sketchy when the professor says, hey, do you want to come down to my basement? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you really stole the thunder from this David Lewis story. No, I have to no, say. No. We, can, we can edit that out. All, yeah. We'll edit the thunder back in. But anyway, he, when he when he was running the train set, he put on this little engineering cap, and it was just the cutest uh -huh. thing I ever saw. Right, but uh, but yes, he took you know very very seriously. Well, he had a way. You you asked, is it meaningful to talk about? You know, had um, you know, had I not gone to college, then I would not now be a philosopher or something. You know, what are the truth conditions of that? I right. mean, how do you figure that out? Um, and the way he did it was by reifying possible worlds and saying, you know, that there are a whole bunch of possible worlds and they really exist. And you go to the nearest possible world in which I didn't go to college and you check it out. You know, 
We can check it out, but what would make it true is if that antecedent, you know, um, were true, would I not be a philosopher, right? Or, you know, if I didn't go to college and I wasn't a philosopher, then I'd be a millionaire now or something. And you go to the nearest um, possible world. So he really, he really took possible worlds very, very seriously in order to formulate what he took to be the truth conditions right. for but, but, but poss- the, again for, uh, the motivations the, he got there for none of these probability no. reasons that that Max just no it was about it was you know counterfactuals make sense right we understand them you know if I you know if you hadn't called me right then I you know would have missed the most important phone call of my life or something. Right. You know, we say these things all the time and we un- and they seem meaningful. Mm. How, what are the truth conditions? And he thought that the only way to do it was to say that all these various possible worlds in some sense really exist. And, um, you know, so when I didn't get hit by that truck this morning, um, which was a very near miss, I, there is a counterpart in a very close possible world of me who did get yeah, hit, right. who did get killed. Yeah. So um, it is funny that it is strangely a, convergent with the the many worlds interpretation. Yeah, it because, is. Yeah. It is, and I, I reflect a lot about that because I was almost hit, killed by a truck when I was going biking to school one day, and I often wonder, you know, <laughs> is there another was there another copy of me that end up in the morgue there? Uh, but I, whether it seems weird or not to me depends very much on what your philosophical starting point is. Because if you start with the attitude that this is it, the solar system, maybe a little more stuff, it seems really weird that there would be faraway places. But if you start instead by just letting go of our egos, you buy into this external reality hypothesis that there is a reality that exists, some, some kind of physical reality independent of us, you know, it has some size. Maybe it's infinite, maybe it's huge, maybe it's tiny, whatever. Here it is. And then you put yourself into this somewhere and ask how much of this whole reality can we humans actually have any access to, any information about? Then there are two possibilities. Either we're going to have access to all of it or we're not. Which way is it? Well, both sound perfectly plausible if you talk about it this way, right? It would seem really pretty weird having this sort of omnivision assumption that there's some sort of law of, of nature that says that every conscious being has to be able to see their enti- the entire reality that they're in, right? That sounds exactly like the ostrich with its head in the sand. So as soon as you open to the idea that there can be places in this reality where you can have a conscious being that's not aware of the whole thing, well, boom, there you have your parallel universes. There are other regions which exist. That was our starting point. And while beings just have no access to them, and they're going to be some some people who live there are undoubtedly going to claim that they don't exist, and it's all philosophy. But then there will probably be other beings elsewhere who will say that those curmudgeons don't exist. And, yeah, it yeah. just it gets especially strange and strangely parochial when you imagine that all of those parallel universes are populated by people exactly like us or with slight differences to the the you know the thread count in their clothing universe after universe after universe. That, and that, of course, that must be true not only of us, but of our pets and all the, the, the rodents just, under our houses. And I mean, it's, you, it's, can, you uh, can make these arguments. Yeah. I'm very, um, hmm, I'm allergic to, to theses that you can sort of argue, but you can't really believe them. But you kind of can, maybe. That's what's I, so cool, because 
you know, the, the, these things, they sound super <laughs> philosophical, and I have been told to only discuss them in bars, and, but I will discuss them anyway, even though this <laughs> is just cold water. In this uh, universe. Know, in this universe. Yeah. Now we actually have gone from arguing about them in bars to arguing about them in physics conferences. And yeah. the reason for this is because it's become clear that there are some experiments that we can do and are trying to do now in the next decade which will either kill maybe some of these theories or make us take them really seriously. Like people are spending many millions of dollars trying to build quantum computers. If that fails because the fundamental master key of quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, is violated, then poof, forget about those quantum parallel worlds. If they work, then we have reason to take it much more seriously. Same yeah. thing with this inflation theory, you know. Yeah, it makes some predictions we can't test, like that there's another Sam Harris with a different thread count on his jacket somewhere. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it makes other predictions also that we can test. We've tested a whole bunch of them by carefully photographing baby pictures of our universe from 13.8 billion years ago and it's passed all the tests so far but there's more tests you know we're trying to do now that's to me why this is so exciting not just because it involves you know philosophically weird or fun ideas depending on whether you love them or hate them but but because there are actual experiments we can do now soon you know which will teach us more about whether we should take this seriously or not Although it's interesting that, that the results of an experiment only move your thinking if the, the assumptions upon which the, the experiments are based, you hold to more than your previous thinking. So I actually, you, you asked a, qu a question yeah. in that initial email about just what, what are our most fundamental commitments mm. you know, propositionally? Like what, what, mm. what is the thing you believe which, if it, were contravened by data, you would have to assume the data were bad. I yeah. want so, to know both of your foundational yeah. assumptions about So the philosopher um, Willard Van Orman Klein, who was here at Harvard for many, many years and was the reigning deity in philosophy when I you know, was a graduate student, um, he, uh, he had this notion of a, the web of belief and that there are all of our beliefs are sort of connected to each other um, and some of them are at the periphery. Um, they're very, very close to, um, to the external world, you know, so that um, if, uh, oh, for example, when, when the mic started going weird, uh, you know, it was, there was something wrong with your mic. I mean, could have been the Mormon simulator, but far more <laughs> probable, right, was that there was something wrong, you know, with the mic. So those, when you're, you're faced with some contravening, some anomalous empirical experience, uh, it's pretty clear which one of your beliefs you're going to have to change. But when you get further in, away from the periphery, um, we have choices to make. Uh, when we have some sort of anomalous experience, uh, there are various ways. You know, we have to, it, it, it forces us to make some modification in our web of belief uh, but there are very various choices. And, um, and I think, I mean, for example, you know, quantum mechanics, very weird, very weird stuff. And uh, when you, you speak about the, the different ways that physicists react to it, some denying external reality altogether, yeah. some, you know, uh, saying that, you know, there's, there's non-locality, there's instantaneous communication between events, that uh, are 
or the multiverse or, you know, all, all sorts of strange shit that people, you, you have to say something to, to, to change because, you know, it's a, it's, it's an anomalous experience, but we have many different choices. And that's why physicists who can collaborate together in physics yeah. had come to completely different views as to what's really going on here. Um, and so, um, everything from, you know, there's a multiverse to, uh, the only thing we know to really exist is our own experience. And it's only when we experience it that reality pops into existence. And I think, you know, what, what we see here in this individual variability and in how we react to, uh, anomalous experience says something very deep about us, you know, about our entire way of approaching reality, our intellectual our philosophical temperament, really, um, or character. And so I, I think it's really interesting at a dinner party or on a first date or something to ask people this question. Like, if you were faced with a very strange experience um, that would force you to make deep changes in your web of belief, what would be the last one mm. that you would give up? Um, I mean, there were some people, I, I know it's not very popular now, but um, there used to be people who said that logic itself had to be changed in the face of quantum mechanics. You know, there was quantum logic. I don't think anybody talks about that anymore, but that De Morgan's law um, in logic is a thing that has to be changed. Hillary Putnam uh, argued this for some time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, yeah. So, so what's so what, the last what is yours? thing? What is the non-negotiable? Well, there are some. There are some. I, I've got. I've got a few. There are some. I think that um, to deny them, even though some people do deny them, to deny them is stupid. Um, that the very denial of them actually commits you to them. Um, so I think, for example, denying well logic. Denying, oh, here's a more interesting one, denying objective truth, uh, that there is anything that's objectively true. I don't think that you can really hold to that view because then you're saying that that's objectively true, that there's no so objective kind of truth. performative contradiction. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you refuse yourself. I also think denying consciousness, as mm. I was saying before. It's like <laughs> yeah. saying before that it takes a very smart person to argue for something so stupid as that um, we're not, it only, one isn't conscious. It only seems to one that one is conscious. Well, if it seems to one that one is conscious, That's one it. is conscious, yeah. right? The seeming is the consciousness. So there are certainly those, but I'm not really going out on a limb um, in, in saying that I would never give these up because I think they're, you know, nobody can actually coherently give them up. Um, more out on the limb is, um, I think there's an external reality that is governed by the laws of nature. That would be one of the last things that I would that I would right. ever give up. You know, naturalism that the stuff that exists is governed by by the laws of nature. Um, I don't think, and that it exists objectively out there. That it would take. I don't want to give that one up. Mm -hmm. More, even more. Difficult um, because some. But well, what about say, a connection to what about moral realism? Uh, this is a topic I want to raise, but yeah. I, want, I want a preview of your commitment to moral realism. There, very deep, very deep down in there. Yeah, yeah, not. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm so it's, it's I'm a very so just unpack realist. that a little more for those who 
didn't follow the, the jargon, if there's any in this room, so that, it, that there, are uni there are potentially universal truth claims to make about right and wrong and good and evil. Yeah. Uh, and it's possible to be wrong. It's possible for everyone to be wrong about what's good. That's right. It's possible for one person to discover what's better. And it's very much of a piece with... And it's, yeah, and it's independent advances. of our, yeah. our views. So, you know, if it's not in mere fact, preference, it's not yeah. mere cul cultural construct. Yeah. yeah. If, okay. if in, you know, the, the Nazis had actually, you know, managed to win and wiped out all, um, everybody of my sort and mm -hmm. yours, uh, who, uh, um, and so everybody who, who existed then uh, would subscribe to white supremacy, you know, and the Aryan race and all of that, they would all be wrong. Right. They would just all be wrong. And it has nothing to do. So with the universe, universal consent is not what makes for moral truth. Right. Yeah. All right. A philosopher after my own heart. Uh, so, Max, what is, what is the the rock on which you're standing epistemologically when you judge whether or not data makes sense. We're talking about ontology now, not moral realism yet. No, I'm we're not, yes. So I try to be very open-minded, first of all, because as I said earlier, I think that's really the key to being successful as a scientist, if you, to be willing to question everything. So I don't want to have anything on my, on my list that's like holy and protected and may not be challenged. In terms of what order I would let go of things, well, I try to be practical about this. What ultimately matters is what decisions I make you know, based on what I think. So if, if somebody says, oh, I have decided that I don't believe that the external reality exists or something, I'm going to be watching them very intently for the next five minutes to see mm -hmm. what they do. And I bet they're still going to do something, you know, which, which means they're kind of faking it and didn't really yeah. believe what they were saying. Yeah, just watch how they act when they think they've lost their phone. <laughs> yeah. Epistemological emergency ensues. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, there, there are sort of many ontological versions here of, of Pascal's wager, I guess. Like, if you, well, if you think there's some possibility that this is all just a Mormon simulation, but you might actually, might actually not be simulated, you might actually be st st standing on top of a cliff, just in case you're not simulated, you know, don't fall off the cliff. That way you come out ahead. Mm -hmm. So I would use this sort of practical reasoning to you know, deal with the, the ontological uncertainty. I used to have this friend when I was a little kid who, um, whenever he didn't like what was going on, like I was winning a game, he would, he would declare that I was just a figment of his imagination. <laughs> And I think that really doomed me to becoming a philosopher eventually because I would try to convince him. Um, it usually ended up with um, a physical fight. But, um, but nothing, nothing <clears throat> could convince him. You know, even when I was punching him, he was just a figment of my imagination and I'm going to try to imagine you out of my mind right now. I must <laughs> say that's very close to the technique I use on social media. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I want to talk finally, before we go to Q&A, I want to leave enough time to, to involve all of you in the conversation, but I want to talk about, we've been speaking a lot about what is and, and how we think we know what is, but there's this other piece, what matters. And this, this word matter, which Rebecca, you pointed out in one of your essays, does, has dual use in our language, at least in English, 
that is very interesting here because as a noun, it names everything that is that that could we could conceivably care about, but as a verb, it names the act of of caring to say yeah. so that some, something matters. So, and you've actually spoken in terms of what you call mattering theory. What what is mattering theory, and how do you come at this question? Yeah, I think that the notion of mattering is really important. I think that what we 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 are we humans at our deepest level is that we're creatures of matter that who long to matter. I think that you know our our desire to you know we we're able to uh, step outside of ourselves, and we know that um, you know our lives are going to. Um, our lives that we care so much about and that we uh, pour all of our passions in and our entire emotional framework is sort of generated out of uh, trying to pursue this life. I mean, who else's life am I going to pursue other than my own? And so it, it, it matters to me. Um, but then, you know, it doesn't take all that much reflection to realize that, look, all these millions of people have come before me and they care just as much about their lives as I do about mine. And they fought and they struggled and they loved and they longed and they won and they lost. And there's not a trace of them uh, left. I actually think this is really important for um, religion. I think that, yeah. uh, you know, that the religions emerged, all of the religions that are still extant emerged during that, what we call the axial age, uh, um, roughly 800 to 200 BCE, uh, when people had enough stability in their lives, there was enough social uh, stability um, that they could think about what is this all for? Um, and how do I, I can't pursue my life without thinking that I matter. Um, you have a great phrase for why religion is a kind of super stimulus for mattering. Do you yeah, recall what that was? I, I recall it, mattering cheesecake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mattering cheesecake. Yeah, so what, yeah. what do you mean by cheesecake in this case? Well, cheesecake is something that um, touches all of our, you know, sort of pleasure buttons here. It's not particularly good for us, but it's a real, you know, it's a high caloric, sweet um, fat all the things that our, our ancestors needed. Yeah. And so that tastes extremely good to us now. Um, and, you know, we just sort of you know, zone out on it. It's very uh, um, yummy, yeah. uh, not, but not good for us. And that religion uh, is, um, satisfies our great longing to matter um, in, in, you know, that we matter to God that there was, we ourselves were created for a purpose that, you know, I actually grew up very religious. So mm. I guess unlike both of you, I know what it feels like to have uh, that point of view, which I no longer have, but it is this great sense of cosmic mattering. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that, and, and I don't know about you, but when I'm sure it's true of you, when I came out as an atheist, I would get, letters from people just saying, you know, what makes you get up in the morning? And it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? I have so much to do. I have 
books to write and students to teach and people to love. The letters even get weirder than that. It's what makes you get up in the morning and not just start killing and raping people. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> right. So that were a, a yeah. pressing urge that we all felt. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, anyway, I just do think that this sort of mattering, but if you are committed to your own mattering and you think about what is it that makes me so special mm-hmm. that I have this right uh, to, to matter and sort of demand it of other people when they don't recognize my mattering. One feels great indignation, great outrage. Uh, what's so special about me? Well, you, quick, you realize eventually, this is what moral progress is, you eventually realize that what it is, it's not that I'm white or it's not that I'm born into the chosen people and it's not that this, that, or the, or that I'm American or anything. Um, it is, you know, to the extent that I feel that I matter. I have to attribute it uh, the same mm. mattering to everybody else in the moral sense. Uh, Can you see a way to reclaim a cosmic sense of mattering that's not absurd or it's not no. obviously delusional? No, the universe doesn't give a damn about us, I don't think. Well, but what if, so I mean, I, I'll just feed this to you, Max. I, I, I suspect that you can see some daylight toward a cosmic version of mattering. I'm assuming that the prospect that intelligence and conscious life is open-ended and can increase and that somehow we might be at the an inflection point there, that gives a little more juice to this idea that, that there's a big, big picture that we're participating in. That's right. I have actually, in my life journey, made an emotional U-turn on this question about cosmic mattering. It started out that the more I learned about science, the more insignificant I felt that we humans were. You know, we were just a tiny little planet in a galaxy in this vast cosmos, and we only lived for like a hundred years, which is like a spark in cosmic history, you know, nothingness. But then, first of all, and I, I think that um, if you look carefully in the laws of physics, you know, you, of course, you will find absolutely nothing written in there about meaning or purpose. Right? That's why Steven Weinberg made this very pessimistic remark that the more he, he studied the cosmos, the more pointless it seemed. Right? Mm. But the flip side of that is I, I don't think we... You know, I think it's the conscious experiences that we have that are precisely the foundation for all purpose and meaning. So I actually made a little slideshow once when I worked on this Sloan Digital Sky Survey where I would just sit and watch galaxy after galaxy, you know, flash by on the wall. and Because uh, I find these galaxies so beautiful. And why are they beautiful? It's because of us with our telescopes. If, if nobody were consciously aware of them, they wouldn't be beautiful. They would just be a giant waste of space, right? So uh, my point here is it's not us it's not our universe giving meaning to us it's us giving meaning to our universe oh yeah and and yeah. that's where i yeah i, I yeah. my optimism I was going to tell you about now comes from i feel that uh, that's how we can matter we already matter we and other conscious animals in that we give meaning to our what's happening on this planet because of we have we have these experiences but if you look at the grander scheme of things you know, yeah, I know most people think that there's a sort of Star Trek cosmos out there with all these star fleets and all this life doing all this cool stuff. Um, there's not a shred of scientific evidence for it yet, and I'm actually in the minority view who thinks that um, life is extremely rare and we and we might be the only ones with telescopes or, or the internet and 
this particular universe. And if that's true, then we matter enormously because it, we've, we've now developed our understanding and our technology right to the point that we either have the power, we have the power both to self-destruct for the first time and last time, or to help mm -hmm. life spread you know, throughout our cosmos and flourish there on not just for the next election cycle, but you know, for billions of years, <laughs> billions of galaxies. And that would really matter, right? If, if 10 billion years from now, our cosmos is teeming with life, having all these amazingly deep and profound experiences, I have no idea how they're going to think about us, but they certainly wouldn't feel that we didn't matter. Yeah, no, yeah. certainly. I mean, that's a different notion of cosmic mattering yeah. it would still be it's From not inside out rather than exactly yeah. 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 yeah so yeah you know that that notion of, of cosmic matter so i have this notion of the mattering map i mean we all have to pursue our lives and we yeah we're sort of committed to our own mattering but we also want to prove it i mean in fact i mean the worst psychological state you can be in is one that who's best articulated by saying you know i don't matter in fact the uh, suicide hotline is called mm. You Matter. Mm. I mean, so to feel like you truly don't matter, this is a very bad psychological state. You know, we all yeah. sort of feel this in some way. Um, but then, you know, we also, we want affirmation from other people that we matter. We're a gregarious species. You know, the chimps are a very gregarious species, and so are we. And so uh, we really, we want some sort of affirmation. But... Um, that makes us feel as if we matter. But we all have different ways of doing this. And I'm very... Um, so many signs... There is, I think, a great tendency to universalize uh, one's particular way of trying to do justice to uh, one's sense that one matters and these sort of projects, long-term projects that we have. Um, and there's a great tendency, I think this is where false moralities come in, of saying, you know, this really works very, very well for me. It ought to work very well for everybody. So, you know, um, so, so many scientists I know think, you know, the, the way that we matter is because we have discovered the laws of nature and we are inventing cool technology and all of these things. Well, the novelists I know and the poets I know think that the way that we matter is by developing our literary imagination and creating beautiful works of art. And, um, you know, and, and activists, social activists I know who have chosen their way of mattering by pursuing social justice, you know, that's the way to do it. So I think um, I'm really glad you're a scientist, right? And that there are scientists doing this, and it is very, very good for all of us. But I don't think that that's uh, why why we matter. Um, if I may, I, I think it, even though it may sound like we disagreed, I, I think we actually do agree. In the both social activists and artists and writers are trying to create positive experiences. Yes. Artists yeah. very directly and social justice minded people by helping the experiences of other people who are less fortunate. And I think that's what this is all about. The exciting thing isn't try to, you know, pave the planet, make them as many freeways as possible throughout cosmos. It's to create positive experiences and help them flourish. And, and, uh, and second, I think 
I'm not just talking about it mattering in some abstract sense that Earth matters. I mean, actually, us in this room mattering. You know, it, it's so easy to say, oh, what am I, you know, this one person out of 7.5 billion, uh, you know, in this very long history of humanity. But actually, that's very misleading and very unfair to yourselves if you say that, because, first of all, it's now, for the first time in the 4.5 billion year history of this planet, that we're at this fork in the road, right? It's probably going to be within our lifetime, I think, that we're either going to self-destruct or get our act together. So it's, it's up to us who are alive now. And out of the people who are alive now, you in this room are in a really uniquely influential position. You know, you are living in, in, a, in a city, in an area which is second to none in terms of just ideas and intellectual energy. And you have enough free time that you can actually go and listen to something like this and even pay money for it. Which, and you have sufficiently open minds that you are actually willing or able to uh, think for yourselves, challenge all your prejudices, and, and really make a difference. So you matter enormously. And I think what's going to happen to the future of life in the cosmos, you know, is going to come down to what people like you yeah. make of it. Well, you know, the people who don't have great intellectual capacity, not. Not everybody does or don't have the means of coming to hear or no interests. Um, I mean, they matter in the moral sense yeah. just as much, right? And so the ones who are just tending their gardens and raising their children and whatever, right? Um, they are, and you know, they also, they matter in that more, the sense that I want to get at here uh, matter just as much as the, you know, and of course, because human life matters each and every one. The same. Um, that's you're, you're why still, it matters so much. You're both that talking it continue. about Yeah, you're both talking about consciousness it's as consciousness, the basis of, course. of, of it is, mattering. Yeah, yes, yes. absolutely. You know, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So uh, on that note, I, I can't think of a better moment to solicit questions from all of you. So there should be mics on stands left and right, and if we could have the house lights up to some degree, I, I would love to hear from you all. So we'll do we'll do Q and A for. A little bit here, maybe 20, 30 minutes, uh, and then there'll be a book signing afterwards. So we're a little more pressed for time than normal because we're going to have a, a good long while uh, signing books. Uh, just, uh, I was listening to the podcast you had with Ben Shapiro um, in San Francisco. Uh -huh. and, and just, I wondered, I don't remember you bringing up, uh, what was that? Sorry, can people hear the question or? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, just to mention, he, he sort of gave like this monopoly to morality to Judeo-Christian values, you know, and he he sort of tosses in Greek philosophy too. But right. that, um, what do you? I mean, the, the role that you think that you know, sort of evolutionary psychology and you know, reciprocity and altruism in our evolution that I I would say that really has to do with with why. You know why morality is real and, and empirical and does exist. It, it doesn't need you know a man from the sky. Did, I mean, do, would you agree with that? And well, I don't know if it, if it came up or maybe I missed it. Yeah, well, no, I, I would say that morality, in, in the deepest sense, in terms of there being moral truth, in terms of it being true to say, as Rebecca just did, that if the Nazis had won, they still would have been wrong. 
right? I don't think that truth claim is cashed out, but it's certainly not dependent on Judeo-Christian values per se, even if as a matter of history, many of us got our sense of right and wrong through that historical tradition. And it's, it's also not dependent upon evolution because our, our moral toolkit in evolutionary terms is filled with bugs. I mean, we, we, we have a pseudo-morality that's driven largely by disgust and tribalism and xenophobia and other things that we want to, to get rid of in various cases. So the cash value of a, of a moral claim for me is, as Max referenced, the flourishing of conscious creatures. And, and, and I anchor it to the, the, the most extreme case, which is the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. Right. That's if, if you're not going to grant me that that's bad, well, then I don't know what you could ever mean by bad. But if you do grant me that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, again, worst possible misery for everyone. There's no silver lining. This is not suffering that pays off in the end. You don't grow wise from this. It's not it's just this is just a, a hellscape for every every conscious mind that can suffer, does suffer for as long as it can to no good purpose. That's bad. And every other state of the universe is better than that. And then, then I view morality as a, as a navigation problem in that space of possible experiences, both personally and collectively. And this, that's not dependent on what's in the Bible or in any other book. It's, it, and it's, it will be guided by better and better conversations of the sort that we're having now, now and in, in the future. Uh, I, I do I just find that his, um, he keeps going back to and sort of just granting a, too much credence to Judeo-Christian values. Yeah, that, that's just, it, it's just it it's seems an like exaggeration a of what happened. I mean, first of all, it's, it's more Greek than it is Judeo-Christian. I agree. Yes, and I mean this is something that Rebecca, I know, has written about. And but anyway, I'll, there's many questions. I'll leave it there. Hi. So first of all, thank you very much for this and for everything you do. Um, so uh, first, uh, you first mentioned this, I think, during the infamous Four Horsemen talk that you had. Uh, that there may be some truths that aren't worth knowing and not worth or, or dangerous to discover. Right. Um, and I was always curious if you could elaborate on that. Maybe uh, all three of you could share. If you think there are truths like that, uh, whether um, they can be stopped in any way, uh, our discovery of them, and how you reconcile the general uh, thirst for knowledge and reality uh, to these kinds of possible mm -hmm. truths. Well, there, there are certainly truths that I think are not worth publicizing. Like, and the, the example I always use is you know, how to weaponize smallpox, right? Like, why, why put that out on the internet and make sure everyone knows about it? Yeah, there were moral ones. So there was bell curve. There was, uh, I think, weapons, AI, yeah. that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So, and there, there are types of research that I'm, I worry has no good purpose. And then differences in intelligence or, or in many other things across race is something I've always been skeptical about. Why, why would you want to research it, but it it's also happens that the more you just research intelligence and its genetics and its you know cultural contributions, the data keep emerging anyway, right? So you can't the question is what do you do when you find something out even if you weren't looking for it? But I would be interested to know what both of you think about the possibility of, of there being truths that are not worth knowing. I, I think that if we could get our act together as a species and create a society where wisdom prevails at all levels, then more knowledge is always better. But that's not the society we have right now. And uh, <clears throat> that means that as, you know, as technology gets ever more powerful, there, there's a risk. If technology progresses faster than the wisdom with which you manage it, 
that mm. that new knowledge could do more harm than good. Your smallpox example is a great one. Uh, you would never walk into a kindergarten with a box of hand grenades and say, hey, kids, play with this stuff, you know, because they just don't have the wisdom to manage this yet. And yet, you know, when when we physicists gave hydrogen bombs to Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, I feel a lot like we walked in with that to that mm. kindergarten with hand grenades yeah. and, yeah. and, and w- with... with uh, and with, with artificial intelligence, that's the ultimate question in this category because it's the most powerful technology we're, we're likely to build. Do we have the wisdom right now to manage artificial intelligence vastly beyond the human level? I don't, I'm certainly not convinced. And um, maybe it would be good if it... It'll probably, I think it would be nice if it just turns out to be so hard that it takes us quite a while to figure out so we have more time to get our act together first mm-hmm. on the wisdom front there, yeah. there, there is a difference between technology right developing technologies and truth and knowing knowing, and truths, knowing yeah. certain truths yeah. that happen to be true but I they're think, very yeah. closely linked i think you know there is it is a truth that if you do <laughs> that if you do the following things then you can extract start a nuclear chain reaction well, and, yeah, right. and uh yeah. now that truth is out there and, yeah yeah, but there, you know, there are, you know, the question is, you know, if reality is a certain way, yeah, um, you know, or, or are there certain times and we just shouldn't know it, uh, that we, we don't have the wisdom to deal with that? It's a different question it, um, from should we build certain technologies, given the the, the knowledge yeah. that we have and mm-hmm. and the technological capacities yeah. it gives us, should we do it? I think those are really two except, except different given, questions. Depending on what the thing is, if the knowledge is out there. Someone will use it, so it's better not to discover the thing first if you're really worried about the, the consequences. I would think. So let's go over here. Hi, Sam. Hi. Having done now a number of live and non-live podcasts, I'm curious how you would contrast the experience of the conversations that you have when it's just you and a guest versus here in front of all these people. I'm still trying to figure out the difference. They're very different, and and I'm not sure which is better uh, actually i mean i think they're they're just they're just different enough that they're just both interesting to me it's interesting to be able to meet you all if if only in this way you know not necessarily one-on-one but just like this and to have the energy of of a room full of people it, it changes the conversation and it changes how i have it uh, having two guests is, is also different but some of what's good about the live experience doesn't actually translate very well into the pure audio. So, you know, like you, all of you will laugh at something that on audio just wasn't all that funny. You know, and, and people will think, what the hell were they laughing at? Right? Because it was a facial expression or, or it was a tone of voice. Or, and so it's interesting to me, but I, I just feel like there's a role for both. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yes. So this question is geared more towards Max, but it'd be really cool if uh, Sam and Rebecca could chime in as well. Um, but if you could talk about the different interpretations of quantum mechanics and which one is your favorite and why. Also, what are your thoughts and feelings about the inevitable heat, heat death of the universe? But on, on, thank you for making us Bostonians feel like we matter. Oh, so the inevitable heat death of our universe has certainly not been happening in Boston for the last couple of weeks. Um, actually, I'll start with that one because the inevitable heat death of the universe has kind of gone out of style. That only applied to... Well, if there were no gravity and no expanding space, and now it's not at all clear that that's how it's going to end. So don't, don't worry too much about that for now. 
more <laughs> pressing concerns. Uh, in terms of quantum mechanics, uh, I think... Um, is, there, is there a parallel universe in which one of your copies likes the Copenhagen interpretation <laughs> of quantum mechanics? Oh, that's a scary thought. There is, you know, violent disagreement within the physics community, great controversies. In recent polls, I've been doing a bunch of polls at physics conferences for the past 20 years, and the Copenhagen interpretation has been going steadily down. Uh, right now, the, between 30 and 50% of the people who work a lot on quantum information tend to vote for the many worlds interpretation, and about 50% tend to vote for the none of the above interpretation, because <laughs> it's also confusing. Um, and then there's a lot of minorities, lesser minorities. I think, it's, I think it's actually very healthy that physicists are keeping an open mind on this and the, the fact that, different, that we don't have a monoculture where everybody is just believing the same thing, looking under the same lamppost for the truth, hmm. is a very good thing. We're much more likely to find the actual truth if different people are motivated to try out different things. In the meantime, let's just keep an open mind and appreciate the fact that the universe is even more weird and wonderful than we once thought. Over here. So I'm going to say something that, that touches on the heat death of the universe, but uh, it's more about time travel. So if you had a DeLorean from Back to the Future, each of you, th the three of you, your own, and you could go forward or backward in time, um, and you didn't have to worry about, let's say that if you were all concerned about human history you wouldn't have to worry about you know your clothing or your currency or spreading or contracting diseases right let's just consider that now if you were also concerned about if you if you were going further back in time you wouldn't have to worry about being in the vacuum of space or burning up in the big bang whatever that was and if you were going further in time Okay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. My point okay. is, when would you go and why for each of you? Okay. Thank you. Thank so, you so yeah. much. Okay. You don't understand what this yes. means to me. Yes. What, what if the answer is right before you ask that question? No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you want to go first? <laughs> now we have to answer the question. Now we have to answer. <laughs> um, you, you know, I, 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 I honestly don't know. I'm very curious about what would happen going forward um, and seeing hmm. which interpretation of quantum mechanics uh, turns out to be true. I, by the way, um, am a Bohmian. I've always uh, liked Bohm. Bohm's interpretation. Um, I think it does the least violence to our intuitions. But um, so I would like to, you know, there are so many questions that we have, and we would love to see how how it plays out into the future. Um, and we have no idea. But I guess because I've spent so much time trying to imagine what it would be like, would I would I have to go back as myself? Yes. Oh. But you wouldn't have to worry about blending in. Like, it's a society. You would know the language immediately, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay. I was going to say I want to go back to ancient Greece, but I wouldn't want to go back as a woman. Okay, um, that's fine. Because, All right, I, I, yeah. want, I want to now follow this question further. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Please if, do. If you could meet, if you had to choose between meeting 
Plato, Socrates, or Aristotle, which would you choose? Uh, Plato. Plato over Socrates. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's actually yeah. not a surprise if you've read her book, which is for sale in the lobby. Buy her <laughs> book. Uh, Max, where would you go? I would go back and meet some people who greatly inspired me in books who I never had the chance to meet. I think I would not say anything to them to, to, to avoid causing any sort of retrocausation meltdown of the cosmos, mm -hmm. but, but just be there and listen in and maybe look, watch their facial expressions also when they had some, made some great discoveries, be a fly on the wall. And then I also want to apologize for weaseling out of your question. You answered it, actually. You said you're, you believe in the Bohm interpretation. So I, I should tell you, I... I I, I don't, my job as a scientist isn't to believe in anything, but I, if I were betting, which I love to do, I would bet most money on the many worlds interpretation. And in fact, the whole chapter seven and eight in my Mathematical Universe book is all about why I think that's the most likely. So I would, for example, love to go back in time and be a fly on the wall of Hugh Everett's uh, mm -hmm. dorm room you know, when he came up with a many worlds interpretation. I would yeah. like to love to go back and see who Jesus was and what what mm -hmm. what the deal was. Right? Yeah, that's actually that that's on my yeah. short list. As yeah. strange as that sounds, I would go back and meet Jesus. Yeah, just to be able to come back and tweet about it and <laughs> go to yeah. maybe you can complicate my life next, even further. Uh, your next podcast. So uh, I'm not. Gonna, I, I don't have a great answer to your question, but uh, it it is filtered very much to the lens of what person I would would want to interact with and and strangely jesus is on the on the list the very short list just because of the kind of the mysterious sway he has on exactly. so much of humanity yeah hi thanks for coming uh so i am a chemistry professor and my research is sort of concerned with using quantum mechanics and machine learning to predict physical phenomena at the scale of say single molecules and atoms so uh, my question is, in teaching AI to be a good scientist, am I putting myself out of a job? And are we all putting ourselves out of jobs as scientists? I'll give that to you, Max. In the, in the short term, what we're seeing mostly is not AI replacing people, but people working with AI replacing people who are working without AI. So... <clears throat> Just as today, you know, you, obviously you're, you can do much more theoretical chemistry work with computers than you could have without. In the future, you'll be able to do a lot bit more with machine learning. Um, in the longer term, obviously, if AI succeeds in its ultimate goal to solve intelligence, being able to do all our jobs for the cost of electricity, you know, one cent an hour, then we have to really have a big rethink of what we want our purpose as a species to be. I, I think this is a really fascinating question that I I am. Um, that, that's what my book is on, you know, the new one yeah. is all, all about. And the, the more we think about it now, before it happens, I think the greater the chance is that something, this is going to be the best thing ever rather than the worst thing ever. Yeah. Over here. Thank you all for coming. Um, not that tall, there we go. Um, I actually work in corrections and I work in a prison and I do mm. a group on this book. Oh, nice with about 50 guys each week. And um, everything I learn in places like this, and I would like to know how you feel about the teaching of Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius, because I use that as well. Mm -hmm. And I listened to everything that you talked about tonight and talked about mattering and everything. All of this, as much as I can listen to the vernacular and vocabulary and can be intimidated, 
all can be broken down and shared on a really personal level where it does really matter. And I think that's where the truth really comes to life. Mm. And um, lying for... Um, well, part of, part of I, my responsibility for my life is that I will not lie. And I'll take the truth wherever it leads me and have the courage to go wherever it leads me. And I found out even working in a jail, if you tell a guy bad news, he's going to want to hear the bad news rather than a lie. Mm. Um, the question is, uh, that someone wants to hear clearly, uh, is um, how much does stoicism influence your current thinking now? Because it, um, I use it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I use the things that... Um, I learn in places like this. I went to see Lawrence Krauss last year down at um, New York Public Library. And all of this is accessible to everybody. You don't have to have a college right. degree. That's my point. Well, so Stoicism, strangely, I, I'm not, I haven't been influenced by the Stoics, really. I, I came to them very late. So I've read Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and, and some of the, the classics of, of Stoicism. And find a tremendous amount of wisdom in there, but it's wisdom that is echoed in Buddhism and other traditions. I read it with real appreciation now, but I can't say that my, my views have, were formed by considering what the Stoics had to say. How you relate to the mechanics of your own psychological suffering and, and just the frustration of your desires and your aspirations in the world moment to moment, I think the Stoics are, are great on that point. So thank, thank you. you. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Over here. And uh, unfortunately, we have about, I would say, about 10 more minutes, which isn't going to get us to the back of the line, but we'll do our best. Over here. Thank you for helping me think more. Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of a fan of truth, and I like the topic of reality. Um, I guess your opinion would be, uh, what is the reality of love? What is the truth of that? Well, again, so coming back to consciousness as the context in which anything that matters can matter, one of the things that matters most for us as, you know, you, you can describe it in, in deflationary terms, so, uh, as social primates, but just as conscious minds is love. And, and so the love exists. Love is, a, love is a natural phenomenon. Love is part of this universe. It happens to be part of the conscious part of the universe. And there's no doubt that it has neurochemical underpinnings in our own case. Uh, it's also possible that we could build it into machines that, that run on a, a different platform. I mean, it could be, love could in fact be platform independent. In fact, if consciousness is and minds are, then love certainly would be. And I think it's, I think it is something that we value and are right to value because of its effects on us and on others and on on our collaboration with one another. It, it, it makes certain things possible uh, and cancels other obvious sources of misery. And its antithesis, hatred, is responsible for basically the worst things we ever do and, and the, wor the worst things we ever suffer at other people's hands. So you don't actually need to justify the primacy we give it. It's re it really is obviously as important as we think it is. And we should be removing the obstacles to it insofar as we can discover them. Uh, this is a question for Sam, although I'm interested in Rebecca's observations as well. 
Um, you have made a strong case against free will that appears to me to be fundamentally based upon a determinist view. Uh, this is a view which I'm inclined to agree with, but I'm having difficulty resolving this with my experience <clears throat> as a conscious being that feels as though it is making decisions. Or Ben Shapiro's observation that even an attack on free will requires the language of free will, and that absent some form of belief in agency, human beings become cynical, lazy, or destructive. Is it possible that a type of free will could exist that is not predicated upon the existence of a ghost in the machine? Specifically, is there room for free will to exist as an emergent property of complex systems that reflect upon themselves? Right. Okay, well, so my view about free will really isn't narrowly focused on determinism. The problem for me with free will is that however causes propagate, whether they're deterministic or they're random or there's some combination thereof, no version of causality gives motivation to this notion of, of free will. It's just there, there is no way you can describe the antecedent causes of this sentence that makes me feel like I have free will in how I utter it. But isn't that a determinist view, or am I misunderstanding? Well, something? no, but it, like, let's say there's, there's determinism, but there's also randomness in the system, say. so Because many people say, well, okay, it's, we don't live in a deterministic universe. It's not just the gears of a, some kind of Newtonian machine. We've got quantum randomness. We've, we've got chaos. We've got just sort of the fact that even, even in deterministic systems, the initial conditions are, are so impossible to specify. You can't predict what they're going to do. None of that matters, as far as I'm concerned, for free will, because there's no version of causation that makes sense of the, of the thing that people feel they have. And the, and the thing that convinces me fully about the problem here is that if you look closely enough, you can see that you don't even have this thing. It's like subjectively, it doesn't exist. And yet, all of the things, all of the dominoes that, that people like Ben Shapiro think will fall if you admit that free will doesn't exist are still standing, like moral concern, like mm -hmm. love, like a sense that it's, it's certain experiences are much better than others and that you want to go toward pleasure and meaning and creativity and beauty and away from a pointless beatdown at the hands of lunatics. The full range of experience is still there and you can't help but move toward it or away from it in each moment. And yet if you actually pay really close attention to, the, to those impulses, the intentions to do anything, the thoughts that arise, I don't see any evidence for free will. It's, it's totally compatible. And this is aside from the fact that just logically I can't make sense of the claim. I, 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 at this point, I don't know what people could be claiming about themselves when they say they have free will. And my view does actually maintain this distinction between obviously coerced action and not. I mean, if someone holds a gun to your head and says, sign that paper, that's obviously different than signing the paper of, quote, your own free will. And there's a difference between voluntary action and involuntary action. But all of that can exist in a causal framework that, that again, you as the conscious witness of your experience didn't create and are just witnessing. You didn't make your genes. You didn't make your brain. You didn't tune the synapses as they are in this moment. And the words and thoughts and impulses keep coming. And if I can just add very briefly, if you imagine any hypothetical world where you personally are convinced that the beings in it, even though they're conscious, don't have free will, I'll argue that those beings will still subjectively feel that they do have free will and get into these kind of arguments. And I want to add just one more point, which is that everything you said about causality, no matter how mitigated by some random effects, is true. But if you actually wipe causality 
off of the picture and say, yeah, there was no causality. This wasn't determined at all. There's no explanation for why I haul off and hit you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, just, it, just, it just came on me. Uh, there's no, well, that's not going to, that's not going to help you either. I mean, so yeah. if there's any kind of causality, doesn't seem room for us to make sense of our notion of free will. Um, and if there's no causality at all, even even less. So it's a kind of it's a kind of fork. And either route you take, you seem to have to give mm. up with on free will. But it, but it is a longer conversation to argue that you don't lose what people are afraid you're going to lose when you get rid of this notion. Mm-hmm. But even that is not, the truth of the matter doesn't depend on the, on the effects of believing the truth. So let's say, let's say it just were psychologically bad for you to realize you don't have free will. That's not an argument for the existence of free will. And you can't, presumably you can't choose to believe something just because of the good effects it would have on you to believe it. You have to believe it because you think it's true. Um, that was actually my second question, is how you actually resolve those two things. Uh, what two things? Uh, and if this type of free will can't exist, how do we resolve the problem that we actually do want people to act as if they have agency, even if they do not? This is something that Dan Dennett harps on a lot, and my use of the word harp should indicate what I think about this idea. But Dan and I have gone round and round and round on this, and he's, he's very fixated on the importance of being able to hold people responsible. And he'll take an example of like signing a contract. If you and I enter into a contract, I am holding you as the responsible agent who signed it of, of his own free will. And if you break that contract, I will, you know, I will hold you responsible and you should be punished or you should pay me reparations. Or, and, and, and much, he believes, depends on us insisting that people are free to sign these contracts and, and author their lives in these ways. You can find cash value to all of the good, the social goods that we 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 want from contracts and from a justice system and from and the, the effects of punishment without ever believing in free will. But it's it's a it's a longer conversation. It's just we we hold people responsible for the kinds of things that holding them responsible for can affect their behavior. Like you can hold me responsible for breaking a contract if you will put me in jail if I break it or if you'll find me if I break it, that will, that will modify my behavior. And, and there's certain behaviors we want, want to modify in the world. But you don't actually have to attribute free will to anyone. And in fact, the coercing of people with incentives and disincentives is not an example of their free will. It's an example of, of them behaving like the machines uh, that they are. If I raise the, the tax rates or the, or, the, or the punishments, you will helplessly find yourself doing something because you're incentivized to do it now. That's not an example of free will. That's, you're leveraging something else. You're leveraging mechanism. You're leveraging conditioning. You're leveraging genes. You're leveraging something that people didn't create about themselves. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's a long, it's a long Thank discussion. You all. Yeah. Over here. This is for Sam, and uh, it's kind of a loaded question, but I hope it's interesting anyways. Um, so in the event that we you know, create... Uh, conscious minds that exist inside of uh, simulation, uh, is there any moral imperative whatsoever to inform them of the predicaments that they're in? Um, and if the answer is yes, um, and they're you know, probably not capable of even understanding what a computer is, would it make sense to possibly tell them a creation story, one that we might know of? <laughs> like a, a bad creation story? That- Tells them to sacrifice goats and all the rest. Uh, well, that's interesting. I, if, if it's something that is as conscious and as intelligent as we are, 
right, that's actually capable of, of worrying about its, its origins, uh, if we're imagining that, and again, I think this is, this is a false landmark because I think the moment we build AI that is human level, it will be beyond human level almost instantly. I mean, it'll be, it'll be nothing like us. It'll be just narrow AI in this very piecemeal way. But the moment it's knit together in anything like a general intelligence, well, then it's, it's going to be better at chess and better at Go and better at arithmetic and, and then better at everything that, that generalizes if it is in fact general. And then, so then the question is, what are our ethical obligations? Well, our ethical obligations are totally dependent on whether it's conscious. If it's not, if there's nothing that it's like to be that system, well, then we have no ethical obligations. It's just a, just a toaster that, that can do things. But if, it, if there's something that it's like to be that, then we are in a very interesting circumstance because we've created something that could potentially suffer immensely or, or experience immense uh, joy. And, and I don't know if you yeah. want to weigh in on that, but... Yeah. I completely agree with you, and I, I find it uh, there's a fascinating contrast between how people who really think seriously about philosophy, like like you guys, feel it so obvious, and at the same time, I just came back from the NIPS conference in Long Beach, where there were eight thousand AI researchers who basically completely dismissed this as this silly philosophy they don't want to think about. At all. This, this particular um, question of, of yeah, ethical whether, responsibility. Whether you have any ethical responsibility if AI succeeds and you make really smart machines. And I get a little bit of a disturbing feeling of deja vu that we might be treating t tomorrow's or, or the next decade's advanced AIs the same way we uh, today treat our farm animals and uh, mm. yesterday treated our slaves, where we make up these very self serving arguments for why we should ignore the possibility mm. that they're conscious. And I, I really hate this kind of carbon chauvinism that you can only be conscious if you're made of meat. Uh, yeah, I, th I, well, I think there's, there's an assumption there, and we were talking about this a little bit, that I think a lot of these people believe that, as I do, that, it, that intelligence and consciousness are, are separate things, and, they need, and consciousness may not necessarily come along for the ride as you build more intelligent systems. But... I think people also believe that there is something magical about having a computer made of meat and that maybe only meat-based computers can be conscious and that, and that we will, that we are actually not running the risk of ever building conscious machines as intelligent as they get. And that's, that I think is a pretty reckless view ethically. Yeah. I think it just goes to show how, how easy it is to get um, stuck with um, cognitive dissonance. You know, even a lot of scientists, who have don't have come to the conclusion that no, they don't maybe they believe in religion and they don't think they have a soul and they think they are ultimately a blob of quarks and electrons. They nonetheless often are stuck with it. None this this childhood this idea that meat is magical mm -hmm. and only if you're meat based can you have be conscious. Which, if you think by scientifically, is about as silly as it gets. Of course, I mean. The, the kind of your laptop is made of exactly the same two kind of quarks as, as you are up quarks mm. and down quarks. They're, it's just the pattern they're arranged in that's different. Mm. And uh, there's absolutely no scientific basis for this, mm. uh, for these sort of, this sort of carbon chauvinism, I think, other than just hubris. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm sorry, but I think I, it's going to have to be the last question because we okay. have a book signing to do. So all right, I'll make you. it brief here and punch yeah. you. So I'm an ex-Mormon. I appreciate the jokes about the collab simulator. Yeah. It has right. been listening tonight, just to let you know. I'm also a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm a very committed devotee of Aristotle, so I was distressed, Rebecca, when okay. you said that the classical philosophers represent a dry well for scientific insight. And I'm wondering if you would consider revising that proposition in the context of our progression from cognitive neuroscience to metacognitive neuroscience and the incorporation of wisdom into a psychological scientific construct. Would you then think that the classical philosophers would have more scientifically generative insight for us? Could you actually repeat that? I had trouble. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, yeah, so just, just to distill yeah. the classical the distill was, yeah. do you think that if we're looking at moving from cognitive neuroscience to metacognitive neuroscience, so thinking about thought, looking at wisdom as a scientific construct, mm -hmm. could the classical philosophers have a renewed input into our scientific generative hypotheses? The classical, many of the classical philosophers had extraordinary insight um, into, still into to problems that, uh, that, that still exist. Um, certainly is true of, of Plato and Aristotle. I, I happen to think you know, that Spinoza, um, who also uh, yeah. was very, very influenced by the Stoics, for example, yeah. um, that everything that we have said um, about how you generate morality and how um, and 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 how we uh, consciousness is is basically matter, um, and it doesn't matter whether it's meat matter or or any kind of matter. All of this actually, you can um, do. You know, there there are insights there in in Spinoza that 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 are completely relevant. So, you know. What we find with the very, very good philosophers, the handful of very, very good philosophers whose intuitions are um, astounding, is that uh, we can actually come back with the scientific knowledge that we have and completely rephrase what they were trying to say without, you know, often quite um, clumsily because they didn't have, they were struggling towards the vocabulary uh, that, we've, that we've managed to, in, in, in the progress of science and of philosophy generated ever finer and more nuanced vocabulary um, and can restate a lot of what was uh, they were going toward in that language. I'm not sure if that was your question, uh, but... It'll as good to, as we're going to get for now. Be. Okay. It'll have to be. Well, thank you all for coming. It's really an honor to talk to you all. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you to Rebecca yeah. and Max. Well, thank you for having thank us. You. Yes, it was yes, a pleasure. Yeah.